The Speak Easier podcast by The Unmistakables. Welcome to the diversity conversation that everyone can learn from. Each fortnight, we interview guests from the world of business, culture and arts about the work they're doing to make the world a more inclusive place. I'm Ben. And I'm Kathia. And today we're interviewing uh, Nazir Afsal, who's the former Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England. I'm a bit starstruck. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> um, I, I've been so aware of Nazir recently. He's just got such a wealth of experience mm. and he's got so much to talk about if we look at his role in the criminal justice system. But also, I just get the impression that he's involved in many more things than that. I, I want to, that's what I really want to interrogate because I've seen him talking out about violence against women, about race, about uh, so, so many different things. He has written a book that we're going to talk about as well, um, which is called The Prosecutor, One Man's Pursuit of Justice for the Voiceless. And I think that's what we'll talk about really today. I think we'll talk about giving voice to the voiceless. That's what we often try to do in our work too. So let's go in and see what we've got to say. Very excited for this conversation. I feel like he's great at articulating some really difficult topics. So yeah, very excited to hear what he has to say. Excellent. Let's go in. The Speak Easier podcast by The Unmistakables. So welcome to The Speakeasy, Nazir. Thanks a lot for joining us today. We start every episode of The Speakeasy with a quick word association. So just the first thing that comes into your head. Um, OBE. Got one. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> COVID. Killed my brother. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, justice. Delayed is better than justice denied. Life is worth living. And racism. Got to stop it. As we woke up today, there was news from Downing Street suggesting that the UK should be seen as a model of racial equality. Just wanted to see what you made of that. Um, just on the headlines and what I'll be able to read, uh, I'm not surprised. You, you ask her a commission made up of people who don't believe there's institutional racism to tell you whether there's institutional racism, you're going to get a, the finding that there's no institutional racism. Uh, I think um, people are somewhat concerned, but not, it's not expected. Uh, I think people's real experiences differ from perhaps the, what the findings uh, suggest are suggested to be. Uh, you know, you look at... Um, well, we're, we're, obviously, we're better in some respects. I mean, looking across the channel... France have just uh, outlawed halal food, and um, there's um, a battle between the two major major parties as to who could be the most Islamophobic. Um, so you can look across and think, well, I'm better than that. Uh, and I, did, and I, I suspect we are better than we were 25 years ago, a little bit. Uh, but you know, the data speaks for itself. I mean, not one chief constable from a minority background. 97.5% uh, of chief execs of local authorities are British white mostly men. Uh, then you've got um, you know, every institution, 1.6% of judges are uh, from minority backgrounds. Uh, you, you know, every institution you can think of, uh, you will find barriers in place just because of your race. And, uh, and of course, the worst one, from my perspective, is criminal justice, is if you're, more, if you're black, you're more like nine times more likely to be stopped and searched, you're more likely to be arrested, you're more likely to be charged, you're more likely to be convicted, and you're more likely to go to prison on the same evidence as a white person. So, you know, 
what is that? What, what's causing that? I'd like to I'd like to know what they come up with. Um, and the answers are perhaps more complex than um, I'm able to share right now. But certainly, um, as I said, I don't I don't buy it. I don't think anybody else, for that matter, who really understands the subject, buys it. Um, whilst not being overly critical, uh, you know, there were, I've said there are some good things within. I'm sure within the report, um, but at the same time, if you if you ask people who believe a certain mindset to tell you what they think, well, they'll tell you what they think. The report itself is um, heavily focused on education. And it, there's a quote that talks about how um, people, children from ethnic backgrounds, I think is the terminology they use, um, actually do quite well in education. Do you think that's symptomatic of lim- lumping people together? You know, because breaking it down, we know that there's certain um, cultures where education, you know, there's a real emphasis on that. And so do you think that this is um, a report that talks about not saying BAME, but still does BAME? Yeah, well, BAME is always used for data collection and you lump everybody together and you'll get a certain outcome. But, you know, you look at some of those um, uh, minorities and because of poverty and because of uh, uh, deprivation, uh, education will suffer. So you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach, as I suspect they, they do. I mean, I, f- I find merit in using the term BAME for data collection, but only for that. I think you, you know, I, w- I was never at that committee that decided we should be called BAME, and uh, I'm certainly not at the committee that says we shouldn't be called BAME. So I think the point is it's much more nuanced and much more complex than the headlines that people are presenting. And when you talk about education, I'm a chair of a FE college, uh, amongst many things. And, you know, if you look across the FE sector, hardly any of the principals, principals and senior leadership team are from minority backgrounds, despite the fact that 25-30% in some places of the students are from minority backgrounds. Uh, and then you look at uh, university vice chancellors, I know of one uh, from a minority background. Uh, you look at head teachers. Uh, so it's not just, when you get through your education, what about your opportunities thereafter? You know, and we know from experience that there are enormous blockages that you will have to ride over because of your your um, your race, uh, for that matter, your religion as well, and certainly uh, the your part of the country you come from, and definitely your class. So I think um, it's far far too complex uh, for the head the headline writers uh, telling us that we are actually the best in the world. You know, we were the best in the world on COVID. I remember a little while ago, uh, and we still are. Uh, but for all the wrong reasons. So I think um, we need to recognise that uh, I would prefer that we talk to those people who have the lived experience uh, rather than those people who perhaps uh, have their own agenda. You're making a really interesting point there because I think, you know, the role of the media especially has been so key in, in communicating this, right? And often what I'm almost hearing from you is we're oversimplifying um, what we're finding within within any report, really, or any kind of achievement that we have. What I've I've heard you obviously over, over the last kind of minute or so, kind of use a lot of stats, a lot of data. What is what do you think the role of data is then, other than obviously doing the the analysis itself um, in simplifying some of these quite complex, quite nuanced messages? Which, unless you can face into the lived experience of every single person that you can interact with where where's that balance do you think within within this space i mean data is just one element 
uh, that you need to explore and understand. Uh, but it's no more than that. I mean, uh, absolutely, you can't speak to everybody, but you can survey. You know, you, there are some, there's some really good uh, tools now to be able to survey uh, opinion. Uh, we've just had a census, uh, which will tell us something in a, in a little while as to what kind of country we are. Um, so you can do that. You can. I hate the concept of community leaders. I don't have one. Do you have one? Um, but the government are very keen to sit around a group a table with community leaders uh, and uh, understand our concerns from them. So yeah, absolutely, you know, it's really lazy of leaders to not talk to everybody and anybody. You know, uh, I've made it. I made it my. I don't know my touchstone in my career, I would go anywhere and everywhere if people wanted to hear from me and if I wanted to hear from them. And I got a better sense of the nation that we're in by doing that. Literally, I was on the road all the time. And, uh, and I feel that, you know, just doing, just simply looking at data or, or simply looking at the experts uh, gives you one view, but you've got to, you got to, absolutely get as much information as you possibly can from as many sources as you possibly can. And what do you think um, this obsession is about being world beating at everything? It's just, it, it's so incongruous to me, the headline, you know, like we, we want to be, an, uh, we're an exemplar to the world. It's like, is that a hangover from the British Empire trying to win everything? It's a post-Brexit thing more than, well, certainly Brexit's behind this, that we've got to make our own way in the world again. Uh, the perception has been, certainly government's perception is, and they are therefore focusing on flags and statues and symbols. Uh, BAME being another one of those symbols, you know, uh, and that's, you know, we can be world beating in lots of things, uh, but the reality is that um, you look at the things that matter, you know, where are we in terms of the education worldwide? We're certainly not in the top 20, you know, where are we in terms of uh, our prison population, you know, so all sorts of things we can look at, which are negative, but rather but focusing on one or two or 10 stats, which give you a, a picture, another picture, just adds to your delusion, you know, uh, and uh, it means that you don't actually get down to get your hands dirty and start looking at those areas where you need to do some work. Um, but I think the, the, you know, the way we are right now, and certainly the government is right now, is this focus on, on uh, symbols uh, rather than um, wanting to talk about the things that we're really concerned about. And you mentioned delusions. Do you think we are deluded about race in this country? Absolutely. I, I've kept our, I, mean, I was there at the McPherson inquiry on Stephen Lawrence at the end of the 90s. Uh, I remember all the institutions almost having a race to, to, to admit they were institutionally racist. There were, there was competition. Well, we are, no, we're more than you. And it was that kind of thing. Uh, and 20 years on there, we are, how, from, how much further? We have this same cycle. We, we introduced diversity officers. We introduced a diversity strategy. We stick in a filing cabinet. Um, we, we don't involve um, um, our staff in the way we should do. Uh, and we think that, and we engage with our community leaders. Yeah, we're literally doing the same old, same old. If you do the same thing, you can get the same outcome. And we are, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't think we're much more, much more further forward. And, you know, the, you know look at, looking again at the stats, I remember I was speaking at the NHS Confederation event as a keynote speaker about a year ago, just before COVID hit. And there were 400 people in the room, all the senior leaders of the health service, which you know is about a quarter uh, BME. Apart from me, uh, as a keynote speaker, Vaughan Geffing, the health minister in Wales, and Lord Victor Adebayo, who's the head of the federation, we were the only people from black Asian minorities in that room. 
but there were 400 leaders from NHS who worked. And, you know, I couldn't stand there and, and just give them the usual spiel. I had to challenge them on that, you know, because I think we... I think it's only because you get around and see this. I'd love to see. I'd love Cameron and others, or you know, when he when he you know he never went out and about. Uh, and you know, Johnson's done similar. They need to go to these organisations and see for themselves the reality of what it is, rather than simply thinking, well, uh, we have a leader who's from a minority background, therefore we. I got this all the time, actually, all the time. Uh, people are saying, "Nasir, you're the chief prosecutor. How can there be racism?" You know, and I had to battle, and even when I was chief prosecutor, battle on a daily basis against people who were desperate to pigeonhole me or whatever. It's so simplistic to say that, look at these figures, we've got a chancellor who's British Indian, we've got a home secretary, you know, that somehow we've we've done it, you know, uh, and uh, we, that's, that's where delusion steps in. It definitely sounds like there's an element of... Um... Well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like in the spaces you're within, there's a level of tokenization happening. On the surface level, we look at you and you're in this space, therefore we must be doing a great job. Is is that what I'm hearing from you and, and what, how you're feeling about the, these spaces? I, I never considered myself as a token. Well, of course, yeah, of course, yeah. Because I bloody well had to work hard to get harder than anybody, anybody else around me to get to where I was. Um, but very much... Um, in the book, I've written this this moment where I went to this event where David Cameron was launching the government's well-being policy. And I was there with 200 of the most senior civil servants in the room. And I sat at the back expecting him to do his usual spiel. I got a tap on the shoulder and said, come with me. And I was put right in front of him, on the, right in front of his podium at the front, because that's where the cameras were. So the cameras were then saying, hang on, look, when... when Cameron is talking to me about his brand new health and well-being policy, uh, the Prime Minister at the time. Uh, and the impression you're left with is, oh, look how diverse the senior civil service is, because that's because you've got me sitting in front of him. But behind me was the reality. And uh, so I, absolutely, there's a lot of it done for show, uh, a lot of it done uh, very cynically for show. And that was a really bad example, sadly. Uh, I never, ever allowed that to happen to me again. Uh, but, you know, this is what they do. It's news management. Last year, um, Matt Hancock was on um, a live interview on, on Sky News and he was asked specifically how many black people there were in the cabinet. And he answered a black question, in inverted commas, with a, a BAME answer and talked about Priti Patel and Rishi Sunak. Are people sort of celebrating or organisations celebrating diversity as if, you know, we've got a couple of people that don't look, that aren't white, so we're done? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been, I can't begin to tell you the number of meetings I've been at with senior leaders or senior ministers where I'm the only person in the room of colour, only person, uh, and, and they're happy, the only other person might be on reception, you know, or, secu or security. That's the reality, but they ha they're happy to, to big up the one or two examples they have uh, to suggest that they are as diverse as, as we meant to think that they are. Um, the reality is very different. You know, I, when I when I was um, chief prosecutor for Northwest of England, every time I went to Cumbria, I doubled the minority population of Cumbria. You know, people people tend to forget how what this country is really like. It's you know, it is a, as it should be. It's a British white country. You know, and there are large parts of it where you'll never see a face from a, a black face or a brown face, for that matter. Uh, and um, but when they do, 
they do look at you very differently, as if you are from outer space in some respects. Uh, and the, therefore, the only, the only answer to that is the more of us are in those roles, the more it becomes, like in the United States, for all its faults, you will find people who are from black backgrounds and uh, whatever, running all sorts of massive businesses. Uh, you know, I think Google's one, Google chief exec, um, Apple, you know, you name it, all the major institutions, you have chief, chief police officers who are black. Uh, it seems much more established there than it is here. But here, because there's so few of us, I'm tired of being a bloody role model. I'm literally tired of carrying my whole community on my shoulders. You know, Nazir, what does your community think? I don't know, ask them. <laughs> you know, uh, you know I, I, but it's constant. And it's really frustrating that you can't have more people working alongside you uh, and be able to do that. And some organizations get it better than others, but bulk of them, I'm afraid, will point to the one or two examples they have and say, job done. I mean, you've been in the space for a really long time. Have you seen any changes? Like how long have you been in this space representing these communities and, and, and what, what kind of positive changes have you seen over, over that time? I started as a lawyer three decades ago. And when I went to law school, I was it. I was Mr. Brownface and, uh, and that was about it. Uh, when I moved into um, as initially as a lawyer, again, there were a handful of uh, black and brown faces in the courts. Uh, and that's grown tremendously. There are many, many more. There's an issue with that, which I can talk to you about as to where they are. They tend to be very much in silo, siloed firms working in legal aid and human rights because they're not given the opportunity to work in commercial law and you know, big money, money places. Um, uh, and uh, additionally, um, the law schools and um, you know, 50%, 40% now, um, black and Asian, uh, but again, where they end up in very much in silo firms. Uh, so there's been some progress there. There's been progress in better understanding of some of the crimes that uh, disproportionately take place in certain communities. You know, I used to lead on honor based violence and forced marriage, which disproportionately, uh, I mean, disproportionately in the in sort of South Asian, Middle Eastern, North African communities, Eastern European as well. Um, and so there's a better understanding of that type of crime, which may be more culturally specific in certain communities than others. Um, but in them, and, and you know, I feel safer in some parts of the country than I do in others. But, um, you know, the reality is that we have made not as much progress as we could have done if we had the leadership that we deserved. And what is it like to to carry that burden? Well, you know, ours is a predominantly a business audience. And so what we see often is um, networks appearing within the workforce. So there might be a network for people of colour, um, an LGBT plus network, that kind of thing. But often what we hear is people talking about the additional burden that's on them. So they might work in finance or PR or whatever else, but it's like, okay, but you also have these other protected characteristics, which means we're going to lean on you for more, for like it's extracurricular work, if you like. Yeah, it's not it's not core business, um, which is what they say, but it's really important, Nazir, that we start engaging with our communities. I, I remember a chief constable saying to me, Nazir, can you come with me to this place of worship? Because, um, you know, I'd love you to come with me. And I thought, do you want me to go there because you want me to add something to what you are saying? He goes, no, I want you to hold my hand. He'd never been. He literally had never been to somewhere which, which was out of his comfort zone. And a lot of that is happening. So even businesses, public and private sector, uh, they, they tend to use uh, people from minorities to access 
places and environments that they feel less comfortable with or in. And, uh, and, but they don't pay you any extra for it. Uh, and it's a skill they won't recognize when they do promotion. You know, uh, the job description for the new role, promoted role, will be the same as it has always been, uh, written for a British white man, generally. Uh, and uh, that means that um, it doesn't take account of the fact that you have open doors in certain communities that never knew about your organization uh, and that uh, gave you access to customers you never had. Um, you know, that, those are the kinds of things that aren't te generally um, thought of as important enough uh, to promote you, but absolutely important uh, for the business's bottom line. Uh, and, um, well, it's either one or the other, is it? If it's both the bottom line, then it should also be something you value and you recognize. Uh, and, you know, I, I got, I suppose, you know, thinking back, I got my OBE for my community work, right? Um, and, but, you know, it's, again, I've written about this. You won't believe the number of people who came up to me afterwards, people I knew and I respected and said, Nazir, you only got this because you're brown. Uh, and their view was that it was Buggins' turn. It was their turn. They were older than me. They'd been around doing legally type work for longer. Um, and uh, they, it was their turn. And I, I was only selected uh, back in 2005 because they needed more brown people to receive these awards. So even when you're recognized, even when you're given an award, it's because you're brown. What do we do to challenge that? Challenge it. That's the, that's the answer. Challenge it. I mean, I, I you know, I've can't begin to tell you the number of fights I've had, uh, not, not physical, uh, with people because of the stuff they've said, the way they've behaved. Uh, I've supported people when they've been taking tribunal action or disciplinary action against them, or or they've they've brought a grievance against their employer. Um, I carry on to this day. I get enormous numbers of requests. I can't do. Many, I'm afraid, I don't have the resources anymore. But you know, people will say to me, "I've got this real problem. I'm being bullied. I'm being harassed, uh, and I will do whatever I can." And often, signpost them for help. Um, but you've got to challenge and continue to challenge and support each other. You mentioned networks earlier on. Networks are really important for that. Uh, staff networks, so long as they're properly resourced, they're given time in the working day. It shouldn't be seen as an extracurricular activity, and it should be something that is recognized in your job appraisal, et cetera, et cetera. And they also, the networks, or certainly the leaders of the networks, should have access to the executive. They should be you know, on that decision-making board and not just simply be a sounding board. The way that you talk about, you know, you work so hard, you've done a lot, you get recognized for it, and still when you reach that level of achievement, the way it's almost seen by the majority or the mass is that it's purely based on you being a tick box brown person. And and that to me is, you know, I, in loads of different spaces, um, how do you manage those conversations? I, mean, I know you say challenge, but when it's a mass group of people who have learned this behavior that that, you know, even if you've worked doubly as hard, even if you've reached that level of achievement and you've been recognized essentially by the highest level of the institution, how do you have those conversations to disprove that actually you should never just go straight to race? Actually, I've worked really hard to get to this point. I think I made a decision a long time ago that I didn't really care what anybody else thought. What was important is what I thought of myself. I know for a fact that I've worked you know, it's something to do with my heritage, I guess. I work seven days a week, 
365 days a year. I, mean, I left the CPS prosecution service. I had 100 days leave to take, <laughs> right? Uh, so I wasn't taking leave. I was literally working. And you know, when you're engaging with communities, as I did a hell of a lot of, they don't do it in work time. You do it in the evenings, you do it in the weekends, you know? Uh, so I was doing all of that. So I know, for, I know myself what I did to achieve what I've done and, and continue to do. Um, so it doesn't matter to me what somebody else thinks. And I think that's just a personal thing. Other people need to have champions and allies. They need to have people around them, at least a handful of people around you who can pat you on the back and say, there, there, it's, it's okay. You know, you're, you're, you're brilliant. What you're doing is fantastic. Which gives you some level of reassurance, you know? Um, but you know, you know, I don't know if you know, but I'm, I'm still on an Al-Qaeda death list, um, which I was on from 2007, so I'm still here though. Uh, and, you know, when I've, some of my cases, I've had far right thugs outside of my door. I've got a panic alarm in the house. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still seen as a threat to some people, uh, even though I'm not doing the jobs I used to do. So, um, you know, I'm, I, it's not, I don't know where that comes from. That comes from, I think, uh, inside, whatever that, whatever that might mean, but also an under, understanding that somebody somewhere has to say something. And if it's not going to be anybody else, it'll be me. I'm I'm really um, interested to pick up on something you talked about about um, the value I think of um, lived experience, like in terms of um, in you know in a job role, um, whether we will ever and whether it's the right thing to do to get to a position where that is something that's valued in a in a perhaps a monetary sense, you know, acknowledging that this person brings something completely different. Like, how do we do that in a way that seems proper? I think you need to re. I think organizations need to rewrite their HR. We've got enough HR people, haven't we? Need to rewrite their. Need to rewrite their uh, job application processes. Uh, how they how they go about it. What they if if you know if they're looking for somebody that looks like me, they'll get somebody who looks like me. If they're looking for a white person, they'll get somebody who looks like a white person. You know, if they're looking for somebody who's as inexperienced as I am, they'll they'll find that person. Um, and I've been involved in a, more recently in a lot of big major public public appointments, where I'll be frank with you and honest with you, uh, I scared the living day outside of the government and they didn't want me anywhere near them because, you know, that's just the way it is. It's a matter of public record that I was down to the last two for the prevent um, independent um, role that's recently been given uh, to Sir William Shawcross. And, um, you know, the, the Muslim communities have said they're not going to work with him, not because of me, but because they're not happy with... Um, some of the things he said in the past. Now it's important. I put myself in a position where I, you know, I will still apply even though I know they're not going to give it to me, because uh, I would be cheating myself. Uh, I let let them cheat me. You know, I'd rather, rather it works that way. Um, but you you've got to look at your whole processes. You know, I, I remember you mentioned about the communities and going. I remember when we had the first knife crime epidemic in two thousand and three four. I said to my teams. Right, we need to go and talk to people who are most impacted by this, the young, the young. And they said, absolutely, Nazir, let's invite them to our offices. Yeah, guess what? Nobody came, right? So I said, I'm not having it. I'm going out. And I went, I, I knew a number of uh, former gang leaders in North London. And I, one of them I went to, professionally, by the way. I, I went to one of them and I said, uh, let me go. And he took me to this above a bookmakers in Harlesden in North London. And there were 40 young men there, all with bandanas across their faces. Uh, and I, our first question, you know, do you carry a knife? 35 hands went up. 
you know. And I had, that was, I still, 15, 18 years later, that conversation I had with them has never left me. They talked about educational prospects, employment prospects, the environment they lived in, um, the poor policing they were receiving, the poor schooling they were getting, um, the, the just everything you could possibly imagine they were, they were, that was impacting upon them, which made them think they needed to carry a knife, even though, as all research tells you, if you carry a knife, you're more likely to be harmed with it than to use it. And then I went back to the Home Office and I said to the Home Office, look at this. And they said, absolutely fantastic. They said, do more of it, please. And uh, I went and did a bit more of that. And then we produced the very first serious violent crime strategy, government serious violent crime strategy, uh, which really had a massive impact in reducing knife crime in the early 2000s. And when we had the knife crime epidemic more recently, what did you think the government did? They went to their filing cabinet and dusted off <laughs> the same strategy. But I got no special reward. I don't care. I don't get any reward. I don't get any recognition. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, people are safer as a result of those type of conversations. Now, it'd be lovely, lovelier still, if institutions and organizations saw that kind of thing as something worth valuing and recognizing over and above the school you went to, the college you went to, the friends you've made, the opportunities that you've taken or given to you on a plate, um, the fact that you've got, you know, you met your appraisal objective targets year in, year out. You know, that's great, but it's the over and above that people should be recognising. And absolutely right, it isn't. I'm a white man working in diversity and inclusion, and I often get asked why. And my, I answer with another question. It's like, well, why not? Because if I'm not included, then there's no inclusion. Um, we know, though, that, 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 that a lot of people, from, from some research that we've done ourselves, that the majority of people are actually scared to get involved in conversations about diversity and inclusion because they're fearful about getting something wrong. Um, I read something about in light of um, um, uh, Sarah Everard's uh, murder. It was a piece that you contributed to for The Guardian. Um, you talked about trying to get more men involved in the subject of violence against women and girls because, you know... The, that's where the violence comes from. Um, so you said five years ago, you tried to organize a million man march and got 52 signups. Is, is that symptomatic of, of people? It is, it is. I mean, I thought I was riding the crest of a wave. People, it was a bit like Sarah Everard's story, tragic as it is. We have them sadly two, two, two times a week, every week. But you know, men, I don't, I'm not gonna brush all men because it's not the case. Uh, a lo large number of us, uh, you included, I'm sure. Uh, uh, you know, they used, to call me, they used to call me the masculine feminist. I have no idea what that means. Um, but the point is that we, we understand the experience of women and girls. And why should they be treated any differently? Why should they have to suffer? You're absolutely right. The focus in the last few weeks, and this is what really got me angry, was on women's security. The women And women need to, you know, go out in twos or not go out at all or dress in a, you know, appropriately or whatever it might be. Men don't give a toss. Men will get you anyway. You know, if you went out in twos, if you went out, you know, they don't care. You know, uh, the violent men that we're dealing with, and there are sadly hundreds of thousands of them, never mind tens of thousands, um, are opportunists and they're predators and they don't have, uh, they don't care one bit what that victim looks like. And victims can look like all sorts of people. Uh, we, we, we have this image, don't we, about what victims should be, model, you know, what model of victim Victims can be commissioners of the Met, uh, and they can be somebody who's 12 in a school. They come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And we've got to recognize the problem isn't 
women. The problem is men. And we've got to educate our way out of this because there's a feeling for me, it's about toxic masculinity. It's about uh, a sense of entitlement. It's, it's misogyny. All of the things that you, I'm sure, familiar with. Hate is learnt behaviour. When you're born, you hate nothing, maybe apart from broccoli, you know? But you don't hate anything. So you, you learn you learn to hate women. You learn to hate people of colour, maybe. So we've got to do the opposite, which, which is literally work on, work on people from the youngest possible age. You know, I've been working with government, UK and others, uh, to bring in mandatory relationship education from the age of five. You know, because that's the earlier you can work with young people and children, the more like it is that you can challenge those kinds of mindsets and behaviors, and particularly with boys. Um, if, if a boy is in a, in a family where, where the parent, the male parent is abusive and uh, controlling and coercive, sadly, that acts as a role model to that child. Not all the time, some of the time. Uh, and, you know, the only, if they haven't got anybody else around them, well, where are they going to get that kind of knowledge and information it has to be in education it has to be in a safe environment for school um, but you know the reality is that two women every week are killed by male male ex-partner or current partner 10 women kill themselves because of domestic abuse every week every week one in four women suffer domestic abuse one in five women are stalked one in five women suffer sexual assault we learned only recently that 97 percent of women say they've been sexually harassed that is the pandemic that will outlive this pandemic and will continue, continue unless we do something different. And you know, I, I, with, the, with the government's approach to increasing street lighting, all that will do is shine a light on the inadequacy of their response. You know, um, because most people, the most, the most, for most women, the most dangerous place for them is their own home. Street light will do nothing for them. Neither will undercover police officers in nightclubs. So uh, we've got to look at how do we protect women in their own homes. And that cannot just be about policing our way out of this. That's got to be about educating our way out of this. And why do you think people um, resist the hard work? You know, we see re responses to issues that come up, you know, in the media, like not all men or all lives matter, like kind of knee-jerk, lazy responses to things that basically say, I don't, I don't see myself getting involved. Yeah. Well, no, not all men reminded me a lot of what happens. If, if a, um, the young man terrorist blew up Manchester Arena, not far from here, um, and do you remember every Muslim was being told to apologise? The not all men reminds me so much of that. It's like, you know, you know we're not responsible. You know, we're, we're somehow, uh, it's that person and not us. We need to understand that we have a responsibility of some kind. Whatever that might be, it doesn't have to be direct, it can be indirect. But we've got to take responsibility for this. Men should be allies of women. I'll tell you why. Because more than 90% of male violence against men is by men. More than 90% of male violence, uh, violence against children is men. So men are violent, sadly, uh, some men. And therefore, if you want, to, as a man, to prevent somebody being violent towards you or towards your child, you need to deal with the issue of male violence. And I think that's why we need to come together on this uh, and recognise that it doesn't just impact on uh, on women. Mm. How do we create those resources? I mean, I've got uh, something pl playing out in my life at the moment. So I was widowed when I was young and I've got a 10-year-old boy I've raised on, alone for eight years. He's mixed race as well. When his being mixed race didn't seem to be a real issue for us yet, let's say. 
uh, and I'll come back to that in a minute, what I mean. I was very much invested in making sure that I raised him feminist because I was, you know, I wanted to make sure without a female role model in the home that he didn't become sort of accidentally misogynistic. And it's quite challenging because I think boys can be often. I don't know if it's a natural thing or whether it's learnt behaviour from the playground, but they can be. Now I'm finding that he um, is really struggling with his identity. You know, he's been in lockdown for the best part of a year he, you know, he's 10, he, he's prepubescent and he's raised by a white guy and he's sort of, you know, he identifies as black, I'd say. So he's challenging. But what I, the reason I tell this story is because I recognise all of these things are really hard work. And actually, I don't always find that the resources are there. So if I look at, you know, if I Google uh, white father raising biracial son, the thing that comes up is like hair care. There's no more to it than that, really. It's like, it's really important that you learn how to take care of the hair. And I got that. I got that down ages ago. But where are the resources we go to for these challenging things? Well, I think my, my experience, firstly, well done on doing all that. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, <laughs> secondly, if, if they don't exist, you need to create them yourself. You know, support networks um, start generally with a person around a kitchen table thinking there's a gap here. I'm not getting it. My next door neighbour has twins and she she realized when they were born years and years ago that there was nothing for her and so she set up a network for twins uh and you know so absolutely we need we can't do this alone we need like-minded people to work with us on this we need um some respite as well so you know it's not all not us all doing all the work um but there are so many things that if i've identified a gap if i can't do it myself I'll try and identify somebody else that's maybe working in this field or could be or perhaps is beginning thinking about it and, and help them generate whatever needs to happen. Um, but I, I really do think this comes down to personal responsibility. You know, the power of one is a philosophy that I very much believe in. Do you, do you, I mean, the concept, do you think that, um, you know, do you think Rosa Parks asked anybody to sit with her? She's going to sit in that seat, you know? Um, or, or Nelson Mandela decided, no. You know, it, when it comes down to it, or, you know, Greta Thunberg, you know, one, no bureaucracies ever change the world. It's people that change the world. And, and it often takes bravery and courage, but it often, usually works because people have like-minded people around them or identify uh, somebody that can help them in that regard. Don't do this alone. And... Um, you know, I say that at the same time, I do feel alone sometimes, but then it's not a problem for me. I made a judgment, uh, maybe I don't know, two decades ago, that I was not going to worry about friends. Uh, I would have acquaintances and I'd have my family and my work colleagues or whatever they were. I didn't, I didn't think it was appropriate for me to, to I, may, I reduced my expectations um, about who, should, who I could have around me because I couldn't talk about my work. You know, you can't, if you've watched an 18 month old baby being raped in a case, which I did, and I'm coming home. What, you know, what, what, what am I doing? What, what can I talk about? You know, um, so you, you've got to, you've got to limit those, those, those kind of contacts where necessary individually. But as I say, I, I pay tribute to the people around me who gave me tremendous support when I needed it. Continue to do so, and who are developing ideas about how we can improve the service for others. Um, but it literally is, you know, if you see a gap. John just thinks somebody else is doing it because you're probably wrong. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I can completely appreciate that. I, I found um, in the beginning when I was when I was widowed, I couldn't find other men like me who were speaking out about it. So I went and did just that. 
and and started a blog and it became a book and a TV show and stuff. But what I would say is that it's exhausting. It's exhausting being a campaigner and <laughs> trying to do everything else you do in your in your life. You're in your book, did you, you know, in writing your book, um, did you feel that exhaustion of three decades of career as you wrote? A hundred percent. I found myself um, reflecting on stuff. And even now, I mean, I, I remember last week that I prosecuted Jillian Maxwell. <laughs> I've forgotten all about that. Huh? 26, year, 26 years ago, she doesn't make it into the book. But literally, I was reflecting upon not, not the cases themselves and the work I was doing, but how I felt and how people around me felt. Uh, and I think that, because that's more important to me. I don't want to read about long lists of stuff. I want to read about how people feel or see how they're felt. And so it was quite cathartic as well um, to get it out there. So, you know, I, re I, 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 I write in a book about how my eight-year-old cousin died in my arms um, when, I was, um, when I was eight. And um, you know, I looked at her and, and there she is. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to allow anybody else to die on my watch. You know, that strangely only came to me when I was writing the book. I thought she left. She it was fifty odd years, nearly fifty years ago. But that memory of that young girl dying in my arms left a lasting impression without me even realizing that it had. And so the whole process of the book writing enabled me to to uh, explore those kinds of things and those kinds of themes. Um, but it also made me realize how privileged I am. I'm privileged because. Um, over the years, victims and witnesses, particularly victims and survivors, have opened up to me like nobody's business. Whether I made that happen or not is irrelevant. They trusted me um, with their stories. And then I was able, hopefully, in many cases, most cases, to deliver some justice for them. But uh, even the ones I didn't do, so I keep telling the story about when I prosecuted um, Stuart Hall, the BBC presenter, and he was found guilty of the abuse of 12 women and girls going back 30 years. But he was found not guilty of one. And I went to see, it was my job, I went to see the one woman uh, he was found not guilty of, of raping. Uh, and she, I said to her, I'm really sorry that I couldn't give you closure. And she said, you gave me closure the moment that you believed me. My recovery started the moment that you believed me. And so I, out, my, I went back and I thought, so it wasn't, isn't, you know, fine, a judicial outcome isn't the be all and end all. It's the fact that I was in a position to listen to somebody and act upon what it is they told me and give them some sense that they were going to get some justice or they were going to get some uh, acknowledgement and recognition. Uh, that, to me, it has left an enormous mark on me, that their stories are my life. You know? uh, and as I say, I feel immensely privileged that they trusted me. I hope in some way I've repaid that trust. It's really interesting watching or listening to you both speak about this, because I, I think it, it gives me hope that there is change on the horizon. However, I'm going to be very blunt right now and quite honest. As I've been sitting here listening to you, my blood has started to boil slightly because, you know, as a woman, and on top of that, a woman of colour, you know, these conversations are really, really important, but not only are they very rarely had, and I, I guess this is why this conversation is really fantastic to have it this open, but, you know, I also feel a little bit, it's been, it's been exhausting for women for a very, very long time, right? We've been taught from a very, very young age that this is something that we are just have to live with, as it's the, as it's the norm, right? And I know you talk a lot about gender terrorism, Nazir, which 
I, I think as a term, I'd love for you to explain in a, in a second a little bit more, but it is so frustrating and exhausting that we are still having these same conversations. And the fact that we cannot teach our children who are very malleable, very easy to be influenced of what the right thing to do is in these situations. And um, yeah, I just love to hear, you know, from you, Nizia, like this, the whole concept of gender terrorism and why it is a national emergency and why actually, you know, this isn't, you know, Sarah Everard might have been the catalyst for this, but this is going on every day. It's a lived experience that women are very scared to speak up about and very scared to even have these open conversations with men because the immediate reaction is defensive. Yeah. It's yeah. immediately trying to find a solution without listening. It is then going straight into something that actually give us the space to speak. Like, it, it's really difficult, you know? No, no, hundred percent. No, I, I, I'm a patron of nine charities, all of them women-led, all of them work with vulnerable women. They're the experts. Ask them. I have no idea. They know more than I could possibly know. But what I've learned from experience, I remember going to, uh, in in our tradition, I don't know if it's true of, of yours or anybody else's that matter. Uh, first birthdays are well are celebrated for a child, uh, and, and by celebrated, I mean an enormous event usually. You know. Uh, Loads of tables and that. I remember being invited to this, um, uh, this guy's first, son's first birthday event. And I went along and I thought, well, that's really nice. And then I noticed that he's had a slightly older daughter. And I said, well, you didn't invite me to hers. He goes, no, we don't have it for girls. We don't have it for girls. And that's, that really resonated with me. The, the concept was that too often in so many families, the girls are seen as a burden in some way. And the boys are seen as a blessing. You know, that happened to me. My eldest is a girl. I remember ringing my family up and saying, yeah, I've got a, I've got a daughter. And I st still hasn't, I've still haven't forgotten it. Um, I'm sorry, better luck next time, you know? And, uh, and if that is the kind of attitude that you, you refer to, it is, it is ingrained. And so when I talk about gender terrorism, I talk about the fact that... Um, like terrorism, terrorism is meant to create fear in the wider community. It's not just about the attack on an arena or a person. It's about creating fear elsewhere. And time and time again, when men commit, commit these acts, it's not just about, it's a, as I say, a sense of entitlement, that I can do this to you, I can control you, I can hurt you, uh, because you're a woman. And, and it's about sending out a wider message. And you look at the headlines. How many times have you seen a headline saying, Man with drink problem kills woman. Man with drug problem kills woman. Man whose wife left him kills woman. Man who uh, couldn't cope with COVID lockdown kills woman. We make excuses all the time for our abuse and harm that we deliver to women. So you, you're absolutely right. You shouldn't have it to carry the burden. Uh, there's a, you know, 50, 48% of the population are men. We should be assisting in dealing with this issue, particularly given that we know we know who the perpetrators are, many of them, many of the perpetrators are. But, you know, to tackle gender terrorism, this is something I'm exploring with you, and I haven't really uh, thought it through. Um, so you can challenge me on this. I think that a man who harms a woman has been radicalized. In the same way that a man who goes into terrorism has been radicalized. Because radical, what's radicalization? It's the environment. It's uh, grooming, whatever it might be, that gets you to a certain uh, state of mind. So I think that men who harm women 
because of that have been radicalized in misogyny, radicalized in toxic masculinity, radicalized to uh, harm and hate. And so given we think we know how to deal with radicalization, i.e. Um, you identify people at risk, uh, you give them uh, one-on-one support and care, uh, you challenge them if they are uh, espousing extremist ideals or or views um uh, and literally you resource it with billions of pounds by the way um and that keeps us safe why aren't we doing the same thing around gender-based violence or gender terrorism why are we not in our schools and colleges i only heard this yesterday Uh, a young boy in a particular school a friend of mine has been uh, suspended for five days because he used homophobic language um Previous, previous boy had been suspended for five days because he used racial language. But they all use misogynistic language all the time and nobody does anything about it. So the point is that I think we can learn from the way we deal with radicalization and extremism and apply that because it's not just about, it's not just about what they do, it's what they think. And how do we challenge what they think? Yeah, and it's interesting actually because I've been reading a lot about the way that we talk about it as well so the narrative we use we often say or we often hear you know the the perpetrator did this to the victim and actually what we should be saying is you know how do we flip that language to say the it's not about fixing the outcome it's about fixing the cause the actual legitimate cause of this so why is that perpetrator exhibiting those behaviors where have they learned those behaviors why have they learned their behaviors and normalized it? And then why are they not being challenged by the systems they're part of? And it's so interesting because, you know, I think one of the examples that I was I was listening to um to someone speak about the other day, I think it was Jamila Jal. She said, you know, we often say uh, 15 girls were harassed by a man rather than uh, the other way around, which is a man harassed 15 girls. And that is a very subtle change in language, but it's actually very important because it centralizes the cause and it centralizes who we should be focusing on. And I think, yeah, everything you've said completely resonates with how I've been thinking about this particular topic. And I'm clearly obviously very passionate about it and Ben is as well, but you know, I hope this conversation that we've had with you allows people to think about all these different elements that feed into a system that doesn't allow females to not be the victim to actually be the people that have burdened this for so long and actually we're now tired (laughs) and we want we want males to take a bit of accountability a bit of yeah a bit of self-reflection and yeah i'll tell you something um the government only governments only started listening when they realized the economic costs or something uh, as we learned with COVID as well. So um, there's, there's, we've known the moral case, the legal case, the ethical case for dealing with the subject. But it was only around, I don't know, 20-odd years ago when the Home Office carried out a survey and discovered how much domestic abuse was costing in GDP. Do you know what the figure is right now? £66 billion pounds a year. That's double the defence budget. That's justice costs, welfare costs, health costs, loss of income, loss of tax, you name it, all of that. Uh, child issues, child protection issues, 66 billion. So back, so government thinking, my God, you know, if we tackle the subject, we'll have all that money to spend on things that we ought to be spending. Isn't it terrible that that's the reason why government suddenly got interested in tackling domestic abuse? All right, we are where we are. But that's a, 
that is, I think, a very strong case we need to make for those people who don't get the moral case, the legal case, the ethical case. We also need to make the business case as well. Uh, but, you know, as I say, I, I, I'm determined that we've got to work on this. And, we, you know, my sad, the saddest thing is that we, we have new cycles that go day to day. Uh, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll forget about this subject. We'll move on to another one tomorrow and day after tomorrow. When you ask me about why we treat it as a national emergency, because then it has to remain on the news cycle. Do you know, the police have a number of priorities. They're set by government. Uh, they call the strategic police requirement. They are terrorism, serious organized crime, cyber crime, and child sexual abuse, which is a bit odd, isn't it? Well, that went in there because we pushed for that 10 years ago. We realized that was an epidemic or pandemic in this country. Violence against women and girls is not there. The government could quickly, very quickly, send out a message here and say, we're going to put violence against women and girls as one of the five or four or five strategic police requirements. What, what does that mean? It means the police have to resource that work. They have no choice. They have to have specialists. They've got to work the NGOs. They've got to support the NGOs that work in this field. And until that happens, until you have that leadership, it won't happen. You know, look, you can't change culture with law. You can't change culture uh, legislatively at all. You can change culture through leadership and engagement. And at the moment, we lack both. Thank you so much for everything, Nazir. It's been a really interesting conversation and thanks for so much for your time. No, you're welcome. Thank you so much, Nazir. That was a really great conversation. Cheers, Kevin. It's very kind. The Speak Easier podcast by the unmistakables. Wow, what an incredible, incredible conversation. Yeah, it's, um, I, he's just so impressive and very relatable and just knows his stuff inside out. And I really appreciate him being so open and honest about some quite difficult topics that we covered. Yeah, I just thought it was so interesting what he said about, um, um, actually creating things if something's missing in society make it um and i can really relate to that because of the the work i did around um bereavement and grief mm. but that was kind of in my personal life well it was in my personal life and and it was exhausting i mean you'd expect it to be because of the subject matter but what i was thinking about from a professional point of view is like if businesses and leaders really want to make a stand um it is another job, you know, and I think what what um, what really became clear in that interview was that certain communities, certain individuals from certain communities, sort of take on more than one job in their role. I mean, it was clear that he's he has about a million different things that he plates spinning, but like to be um, to be someone that wants to drive change is a real commitment. It, it it's more than a job, yeah. more than your business. We hear this a lot, actually, in a lot of our workshops and, and stakeholder interviews and things like that, particularly where it's, you know, a minority community. The fact that not only have you taken the bravery to stand up for something that you genuinely care about and want to change because it's wrong, you then pick up the burden. I mean, we use the word burden and weight quite a lot in that conversation. And you can feel it in the way that um, Nazir talks about his experiences. You know, he's often the only person in the room. He's often the only person that people are coming to and then saying, well, give us the experiences of everyone that you know that looks like you. And that is very problematic as like a a way to solutionize some of these issues because it's very personal number one and it's a lot for one person to take on mm -hmm. but one person can make a change and i think you you resonated with that a lot is if it's not there 
you can take you can take the lead. You don't have to wait for someone else to do that. If you you can, if you can see that a change is needed, drive that change. Yeah, and if you wait, it might never come. We all want this response, but from whom? Where's it coming from? You know, it's like, who are the people that are going to make that happen? Because we've seen time and time again, it's certainly not necessarily our government. Yeah. Loads to yeah. think about. That was the Speakeasier podcast with Nazir Afsal, OBE. Um, join us for the next one. You can follow us at, um, at underscore unmistakables on Twitter and Instagram. See you next time. See you next time. The Speak Easier podcast by the Unmistakables. <laughs>